introducing CRS Radio's Motown Legends and Alumni with your host, Motown Alumni President, Mr. Billy Wilson, and Motown Alumni, Mr. Billy Tappan. All right. Well, okay. well, well. Hello, well, everybody. Well, well. How Hello, you everybody. Hey, we're doing wonderful. How you doing? God is always good to me. Hey, you know what I say? Every day in paradise, my friend. Every day in paradise. That's right. Yeah. It, yeah. That's right. I, you know, you know, I believe so that as long as, as long as you can make it from the bedroom to the bathroom by yourself, you are blessed. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> so, Billy, let's see what we got. Uh, we're going to dive into some things. Uh, we are um, affiliates with the Motown, and we're talking with the president, uh, Billy Wilson, and uh, the Motown alumni. So I, we're going to get into some some conversations about different artists uh, and things maybe behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. Um, so whatever way Billy wants to go, we're going to go that way. So, Billy, I'm going to hand it over to you, and uh, me and Denise will sit back and we'll listen. Yes, oh, that's we all will. right. <laughs> we have um, we have an interesting show tonight. I'm gonna throw around some facts and a variety of information pertaining not just to Motown but to black music in general. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that today's music genre is so much. Um, there's so much controversy about it. If you, if you knew anything about Motown music back in the day, Barry Gordy, he wasn't into controversy for the, almost the entire 60s. You know, they sang love music. Uh, David right. Ruffin said, David Ruffin said one time, that uh, their music was so pure that a child could sing it, and and they would know all the words to the song, and that was a fact. Motown music was very eclectic, and they if you listen to their songs, they told stories as they. Uh, address their music. There was always, you might have started out sad, but by the time you got to the end of the story, there was always an upbeat uh, rhythm that was a part of the whole Motown uh, narrative. So today we're going to dive, today we're going to dive into that, and we're going to, as, as I go along, and even the entire time that I'll be doing these shows, I'll just throw in some facts and tips, tidbits that people be interested in. Okay. So, we can't wait. Um, let's let's talk about in the beginning. Okay. I want I want to talk about the beginning of Motown. See, it, a lot of people identify Barry as a genius, 
Barry, he wasn't a genius. But what was cool about him was he learned how to listen. He didn't over-talk people. He didn't try to act like he was better than anybody else. He got what made him a, a great man is that he learned how to get people that knew more than he did about uh, a variety of things that was in the uh, record company, in the record business. You know, people like Barney Ailes, who was part of his marketing staff, and uh, Al Abrams. Al Abrams started as uh, Motown's press agent, but Al wasn't even that good as a press agent, really, when he first started. He was just uh, jumping on the scene, and he heard that Motown was looking for somebody. He came from Hamtramck, Michigan. You know, the only thing black in Hamtramck at that time was a dog named Blackie. (laughs) Black people. (laughs) Black people didn't. Black people didn't live. They didn't live in Hamtramck at that time. Wow. Not like they do. Not like they do now. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Hamtramck is very cool. Back in those days. You know, if, if you knew the dog named Blackie, you, you know, you were you were in like Flynn. Everybody knew him. Wow. <laughs> so uh, as we, um, so Mo, Barry Gordy, you, most of you may or may not know how he started his career, his sister Gwen. And um, Billy Davis, Billy Raquel Davis, they were all songwriters for uh, Jackie Wilson. Most of Jackie Wilson's early year songs, Reap Petite and uh, Lonely Teardrops and those type of songs, uh, were written by Barry, his sister, and Billy Raquel. Okay. And uh, the... Jackie, he he loved Barry. Barry was really humble. He was a humble man. He was a very kind person, you know. And there were, of course, there were people around here that were cool, you know, back then trying to be cool or trying to be trying to be a pimp was fashionable. And he he was none of that, but he. He just slowly developed into being the key person that everyone really started to focus on. And uh, as his career started, see, he was popular in Detroit because he was Jackie Wilson's songwriter. So people who were singers and people of that nature, they, they knew of Barry Gordy because he wrote some of the coolest songs at the time and Jackie Wilson was the man. Yes, he was. You know, he, he was one of a very few groups of blacks that were able to get on American Bandstand and 
and uh, other programs of that nature. You know, during that time period, you had people like Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, and Nat King Cole. Those were the three top brothers in the turn of of the 50s. You know, so we really, really, really were trying to make something of ourselves during that time period. And as as the world started opening up, there it came along during the time when the revolution was happening. You know, flower child people and hippies and those type of people were starting to spring up slow, slowly in the 60s, you know, which opened up an entire generation to uh, yes, it a multicultural a concept, and uh, a lot of people don't realize that when the transistor radio started, which was 1960, see, during that time, they called our music race music. You know, we obviously know what that means. So what they yeah. would do, they would play, they would play our music on the radio, and then they would take the song off and say, well, we will never play this race music again. And then you could hear them breaking the record on the table in the studio. Oh, wow. So the race music, you know, they, they, at that time, they didn't call it R&B. They didn't even call it soul music. That wasn't mm-hmm. until well, that wasn't until well into the sixties. So we, as we started to grow as a people, um, and I'm going back to the transistor radio. Why that was important to us is because the young white people could only afford those radios. They used to listen. They used to listen to our radio station. The young white people. They would go upstairs. They would go to bed early, and the parents thought, "Oh, I, I just have wonderful children. They don't bother us or anything." But the kids really wanted. The kids had, you know, the main radio in the house. The uh, parents controlled. So whatever the parents wanted to listen to, that's what the kids had to listen to. But when the transistor radio came out, the kids could take their radio upstairs to bed, and they'll listen to their the radio station. They'll listen to the black radio station that didn't come in that good anyway, but they'll still tweak it up so they could hear the black radio station. Uh, that had a bad transmission. But that's how they listened to our music. And that's how, that's that's really how our music became real popular. Oddly enough, it wasn't just through black people. It was through young white people. And even if you ask some of those people today, I mean, anybody born between uh, 
1955 to uh, and beyond. He asked people that are amongst that age group what they felt about Motown music. They all will tell you a similar story. That's yeah, what and Mot- that's what made Motown great. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm reading the whole situation because I noticed back in them days uh, when Motown came on, because you know it's like maybe um, a few years after busing, um, we were actually going to white schools, and they were actually playing music. The white kids were playing the Motown stuff. And it was just uh, it was just ironic. I mean, at that time, because you know you didn't really hear, hear that, especially in Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids is very very uh, settled, um, and they're ran by you know Dutch people. So everything was pretty much quiet there. You had to listen to mainstream radio that they had, WLAV, uh, WGRD. I mean, these are the stations, and it would actually started slipping in some of the Motown stuff, you know, and it went on for years. Um, and then it started being more prevalent to everybody at that stage of the game. So it took a long time for Grand Rapids to open up and finally have black radio, but that didn't happen until the, the 2000s came up. So we were actually, we only had like uh, outlets like this that we have here where you have light, uh, late night radio um, at a community college radio station, and it only the only uh, circumference of that was around town. Anything outside of uh, uh, Granville, it's going to be static, very staticky. But um, we not only listen to that, but you remember Randy's from uh, that came no. on late at night. Randy's no. was a station that we could pick up, um, and this guy actually um, he was I, I don't know the Randy's was white, but whatever it was, he played all black music back in them times. And you could ride around uh, ride around town at 10 o'clock at night and pick up Randy's until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning until he went off. But, Where was uh, Randy's located? Go. I think it was down in Tennessee. But it was real prevalent okay. from the 60s up until maybe the middle um, 70s. And it was like we couldn't pick it up anymore. But he was a real popular guy. And believe so it or not, I... So I take it that he was on a AM radio station. That might have been. Now that I think about it, yes, it was because it, I think everybody was not popular during that time. Right. So this is the thing I know back in the day before. Um, well, you know they had the, the, where you could put a record player in your car. That was what was going on back then, but everybody couldn't afford those things. You know, so you had that, to listen to this. Yeah, uh, that, was, that, was, that wasn't until, like, the late, later 60s. Exactly. Early 60s, we didn't have all that. But no, what, no. What, what they would do is they would play black music after 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's right. So that's oh, really right. That's why... That's, that's why white people could, young white kids, I, I keep saying white people, but I'm talking about the younger white children that that appreciated the music. They, I mean, they they loved, they loved music so much that they would sneak out sometimes. And uh, if, if, if 
one of the Motown artists were, were in town at a theater, you know, that predominantly was black usually. They would sneak mm-hmm. out and they get a bunch of their friends together and they'll go down to that theater, stand in line and get a ticket. You know, oh, old black yeah. people they the old black people look back and go, What the what are y'all doing here? Right. And they'll pull up and wow. they'll they'll pull they'll pull up their albums and go, I'm a fan of Smokey Robinson. Oh. And the brothers were like, Oh, okay. Well and and when they got their tickets, those same older guys would escort them to their seats, which were usually front row seats. Mm-hmm. And and uh make sure that they were well taken care of. And you know, during the times when um if you remember during the sixties, like when the Beatles came, you hear all the girls screaming oh, yeah. and all the girls oh, yeah. hollering and screaming. You know, the Beatles yeah. used to pay they used to pay those girls to do that. Oh, they didn't oh. Do that, you know? Wow. They, they, <laughs> now that's something they didn't, yeah, That's something I didn't know, but they, I can they hear you on this. I understand it, yeah. Listen, they they didn't originally do that natural. But when right. the ones that they paid that got screaming and hollering, which encouraged the other girls to come and scream and holler. Yeah. And, and it inspired, every, you know, all the other young people to to do the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, so, right. but Motown people, they didn't know to do that, and they couldn't really afford to do that. But these little young white kids, they were so accustomed to it that that's what they done at the Motown show. And by the end of the Motown, before the show ended, usually they'll say, "Well, this is the last song," and everybody go, "Oh!" But before the show ended. The young people would they would leave and they would they would tear up going down the aisle and what they were doing they wanted to go to the back of the facility where the limousines were or where the Cadillacs were to get autographs. Okay. And mm-hmm. and and usually they were the ones standing in the back screaming and hollering and jumping to get autographs from the Motown stars. And after they got their autographs, they totally happy. They all went back home. They all snuck back in their ho- their houses. Nobody ever got caught. Okay. And the rest, well, the hold rest it, is hold your thought. Hold your thought on this, Billy. We're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be, we'll be right back with Billy and Billy. Um, in just a second. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. All right.
the reason he started the company because he when he got his uh, Jackie Wilson check, I think it was only three dollars. After all of that hoopla and such big hits, Smokey Robinson said, man, (laughs) that check is so little. You might as well start your own record label. And lo and behold, eventually he did. You know, Barry was a, because he was a songwriter, everything was based around songwriters. If If you see it in the company, he hired a lot of people to write songs for the company. And he had the artists to sing those songs. Very few of the artists actually had any singing rights for any of the Motown songs. I mean, there were a handful, but I know Junior Walker in particular, he pretty much had his hands in all of his songs, but Barry didn't know much about sax playing, singing sax player. All the producers, they all could sing. All of the uh, songwriters, they could sing. Everybody could sing. Everybody knew, you know, what they wanted to hear out of the music. In today's time, the artists have a lot of control over how the music should sound. Back in those days, whoever the producer was, they told the artist how to sing. If you listen to the this, if you knew how the pro- producer sung his music and listened to the artist that he produced, the producer's style in the artist's music. Yeah. Martha, yeah. Re- Martha, Martha Reese didn't, you know, she didn't sing those great tones naturally, but that mm-hmm. was, she had, to sing, she had to sing what the producers told her to sing. You know, it wasn't until much later where people like Diana Ross could come in, knock it out, and, and leave. You know, it, it was much, it was, Many years later. Okay. Now, let me say this, Billy. Um, in case the audience doesn't know, you were a part of Junior Walker and the All-Stars uh, back in the day. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that was after his death, though. When he, when okay. he died, and his, his drummer, Billy Sticks Nix, who has an interesting story pertaining to Junior Walker, he was Junior Walker's competition when Junior was young. Bill, Billy was like the man, you know. Junior okay. had his band, but Billy was the man. He, he was a drummer, and it, his group was called uh, Mix Sticks and the Rhythm Rockers. And okay. he had a te- he had a television. He was a part of a television show. You know how Jimmy Kimball and them got their band in their shows. Well, Billy was part of a he was in that band or whatever the program was in uh, in uh, uh, Indiana. 
Okay. And he 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 hired uh, his competition, uh, Junior Walker, to come and play in his group. Huh. And you know, and they they done that back and forth. You know, Billy would go play in Junior's band, and uh-huh. Junior would come and play in Billy's band, and and uh, so, but Billy had to eventually he was uh, to go to the army. So Junior took Billy's band and, and moved them to Battle Creek. And started the Gene Walker all stuff, the uh, the Gene Walker band, and they weren't okay. called the Gene Walker band; they were called the All Stars. I remember that. Yeah, and so there were a variety of All Stars, except for the uh, guitar player. The guitar player eventually he stuck with he stuck with Junior all the way through to Motown. Okay. And then Billy came, and then Billy came back, and he started playing off and on with Junior again for many years. He he's a dominating part of the Roadrunner album. Gotcha. And uh, he yeah. So anyway, Junior died in uh, nineteen ninety five. Billy. Oh, it's been a while. It's been a while. And Billy. Billy continued the band. He took it took a while for him to put the band because it, like it took him about two years to actually put the band together. And eventually, I joined up with them, uh, and I ended up being the music director and the band director, uh, mm-hmm. the manager and the music director for the band till two thousand and two. Well, until 2000, until 2000. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm going to ask another question here, and a lot of people probably are not familiar uh, on this topic, uh, and it's why our artists are not getting paid, particularly Motown singers. So can you answer that? Do you want to answer that? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a variety of reasons. When back in the day, Artists were only getting, if you were new artists, you only get 2% of sale, of record sales on your contract. Mm-hmm. That was sure. standard. That was standard all the way through the 50s, the 40s, 50s. You only got That's 2%. Right. Now, the pro- problem was records might have been less than a, a dollar at yeah, that they time. Were. Yeah. So you weren't you weren't making a treat unless you had a million seller. And even when you had a million seller, you still wasn't making a whole lot of money because Motown, um, see Motown done what every other record company would do. They were charging the artists to to make the recordings. They were charging the artists. Oh wow! So. And they charged their artists for everything. Usually the artists weren't making that much money in general. So they'll borrow money from the record company to pay rent, pay for groceries, pay for clothes. You know, the artists 
they really went crazy when they found out that they could borrow money. And so Barry would say, okay, look, we'll give you this money, but then we'll take it out of your royalty. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They didn't make raw. They didn't make a lot of royalty, anyway. Right. But but the other problem is that if the record company kept you, and if they made numerous albums on you, they still charged you for those albums. So not only were you not going to make any money in any. Even if you bumped it up to 4%, you know, Elvis Presley was making 4% on his record. He, he didn't okay. make 10% or 20% or 50%. He didn't, he didn't make that. He made 4%. If you made 4%, you were a big star. Okay. B.B. Uh, King said said it himself one time on an interview. He said, man, I was making 2%. And then when they bumped me up to 4%, I was just a big shot. <laughs> well, the records, <laughs> they were less, less than a dollar back then. I think they got up to a dollar twenty six eventually. 45 got up to a dollar twenty six. Ooh, wee, you made some money. Right. So, uh, leading to what your question is, as far as artists making money, artists don't, in today's times, they don't really know the business very well. I mean, they've seen it on television. We've all seen it on television, and we all got our ideas of what it means to be a rock star. But a lot of art, 90% of the artists in the world don't know that you, your records, your independent records have to have an ISRC code, a UPC code, and an EAN code before Billboard magazine would even look at your material. They won't even oh, look yeah. at you if you don't have those codes. There music out there. And thank God the uh, distributors, you know, whether it be DistroKid or TuneCore, they'll give you codes. They'll give you at least the ISRC and the UPC code. They'll give you that for free. But the problem okay. with that is if they don't like, if they don't, if for some reason they don't like you or they decide to drop you, they own the code. You can't use that code for. You can't use that code to go somewhere else. You oh wow! To get a okay. brand new, you, have, you have to get a brand new code. Okay. And, and they and they can drop you from every single uh, digital store that they offer. So if they offer. A, your music into 150 stores. They can drop your entire catalog and you will totally disappear off of the earth. Wow. Interesting. So let me ask you this, Billy. Um, the musicians that are, that are not being uh, compensated properly, 
partly the Motown musicians. Now, why is that? Because I've heard that before, and I also also heard that like the Temptations that those guys were making probably I don't know back in them days anywhere from two hundred five hundred dollars a week. Is there any truth in that? That was big money back then. Uh, yeah. Back in the yeah. 60s, that was big money. But it, uh, yes, there is truth in that, and it, it's a fact. And they also, in today's time, a lot of people, older people don't know, particularly older people, young people absolutely don't know, but the older people, you would think that they would have gotten hip to something in the music business today, but they haven't. They don't know that one of the reasons some of these big stars, big, big stars, have not been getting paid because they've never registered the sound exchange. Right. Soundexchange.com. But SoundExchange gives you 45, if you're the featured artist, Let's say you're Tom Jones or somebody, uh, and you're a featured artist. If you register with Sound Exchange, they give you they give you forty five percent of the royalties of the performance royalties. Then that's for that's on a per song basis. That's different than the money they get. From a record sale, nobody's buying records nowadays. The, right. The biggest, the biggest uh, royalty out there is the performance royalty. The performance royalties is uh, anything that's being played on radio. If you hear it on radio, that's considered a performance royalty. You on satellite radio, internet radio, terrestrial radio, AM, FM radio. You get the royalties from that. Okay. Now, most artists, they might be registered with Sound Exchange, but what they don't realize is you have to, you can't just register your name. You have to register it. every single song that was re-released or released in the past. Every single song that was ever released on you. You know, if Martha okay. Reeves try to if she tries to uh upload her her songs, it would take forever and a day because her songs have been released over and over again for for decades. Okay. Um let me ask you this question real quick. Um, like, let's say a person like me, an artist, independent, and um, the people that actually manage me with underneath their label, um, they no longer are alive. Um, now, if I take and redo the copyrights, cover me. I wrote the songs, you know what I'm saying? So there's nobody for the, the money to go to. So well, you, how would you, you may not you may that? not know you may not know where that money is going, but let's use that as a scenario. If mm-hmm. you wrote the song, if you wrote the song, 
and the song is identified by you through BMI Ask Applesack. You can redo yeah. your own song, you know. Yeah, because ASCAP, we're going to ASCAP. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ASCAP. Well, if you remember a couple of years ago, remember when uh, Taylor Swift was having an issue with the guy that all the rights to her songs, all of her hits. So what Taylor was going to do, she's going to just redo all of her songs. Right. Bada boom, bada bang. Exactly. So you can do okay. the same thing. Okay, okay. Just wondering because both the parties are gone. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the kids and stuff like that. I'm real good friends with uh, one of the, uh, you know, uh, deceased, and he has he doesn't get anything from it. So uh, that may be a, a good good sign. So we'll we'll uh, take it. Yeah. Deal with that on a later yeah. date. Uh, but we're going to do a real short commercial break. Uh, um, we'll be back in just a bit with Billy and Billy uh, from the Montown Alumni. Okay, uh, Denise. Yes, you're listening to CRS Radio, Motown Legends and Alumni with Billy and Billy. One, two, get down. Bandit calls to be the boss. Thank <laughs> you. 
Legend and Alumni with your host, Motown Alumni Association President, Mr. Billy Wilson, and former Motown recording artist, Mr. Billy Tappan. Welcome back. And we are back. And we are back. Billy, I got a question for you uh, as I start thinking. Um, In terms of Barry Gordy, and this has been an argument um, that I've had with several people that have been a part of the music business, uh, but people have different takes on this. Now, um, did uh, did Barry Gordy, did he or didn't he screw over uh, his artists? What's your reply on that? No, he didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, Barry offered something nobody else offered, longevity in the company. And and keep in mind, let's go back to the fact of what I said previously. They were only making two cents per sale. But in the beginning, nobody was making big, big money. The big money at the the most... um, Smokey Robinson and Miracle, they made the first million seller of the Marvelettes. They made they had the first a big hit. Uh oh, number really? one hit in the in the number one hit in pop and R and B field. Uh nobody was really making that big a heck of a money, you know, a lot of money. 
Yeah. And plus, plus during that time, black people, you know, we were struggling to try to get on radio. We struggled for everything. Barry Gordy struggled to get from point A to point B. He had to hire an all-white marketing staff the entire time of his hit years in the 60s, all the way up to 1968. His staff was 100% white from the beginning until 1968 because those people were experienced. They were well-experienced. Barney Ayless, he led the way because he was already with Handelman, who was a major distributor. But Barney, he maneuvered and manipulated things. And when those white people down south seen, seen uh, Barney and his his all-white staff, they were like, oh, well, them white people must be controlling the Negroes up there in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And of course... And, of course, Barney didn't say, no, I wasn't. You know, he didn't say I wasn't the boss. No, no, if anything, he would say, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. But he he got those records played on white radio stations all over the United States. That's right. So leading back to your question, and this also leads to the – uh, sound exchange platform too for today. See the the older artists they they first don't even know about sound exchange. They don't know the value or importance of sound exchange. They don't know that they're supposed to register with sound exchange, and it is too tedious for them. You know they're they're much older, so they don't. They're not technologically advanced in understanding how to do that. And plus, even in today's time, really, they don't. They make a bit of a little bit of money for um, from the record company, but the majority of the artists have to perform. They got to get out there and perform to make their real money. And it was right. the same back then. It was the same back then too. Motown just happened to be uh, functional enough to where the artists could borrow money from Barry, and they can, you know, they could do little extra jobs here and there. Barry would hire them to do a job. Motown was very fortunate. Motown artists, but in for the most case, the average artist. They gotta work. You gotta work to not only promote your music, but you gotta work to make money for your family. Nobody's gonna sit home and make all the money on recording. Nobody right. does yep. that. So the question, so the answer is nope. He didn't steal. He actually he done everything. He done everything exactly as the record industry was doing during its time. Now, mm-hmm. that's how come that's how come he he hardly ever lost a case. You know, people tried to sue him. 
But right. yes, how come he, he hardly ever lost the case because he done everything properly. And even when people tried to quit, they would quit and they would breach the contract and get mad over the fact that in the contract it says that, look, you, you can leave if you want, but if you leave, you're breaching the contract, which means all your royalties will stay here at the company. Gotcha. See, gotcha. He lets he he would let you leave, but he's gonna keep your royalties if you do you breach that contract, which some did, Mary Wells, uh, uh Florence Ballard, you know, different people just left. They weren't really making any money anyway. Little did they know that as time had gone on, as the music industry had changed, you can start making money now through, through your recordings, through your old recordings. They never, they didn't. Who thought about streaming and stuff like that during that time? Nobody. Right. Yes. So let me ask you this. This is a part of a three-part uh, question. Um, can you tell me um, why Motown moved to California and also why Detroit hated Barry moving to California? And this is the three-part mm-hmm. one. So was Motown connected with the mafia? Barry can do, do it at a time. Barry, Barry moved to California, first of all, because his sister Gwen, who was his comrade in music, she was living out there. And she okay. was living real good. She was real, you know, that California weather that was just beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah the Mich- Michigan people go out there, all we think is beauty. But, um, but also the big reason is because Barry had he had artists that were big, but Diana Ross was the key person. She could do anything. That's what right. he felt. And so he decided he wanted to take her to the movie business, and the movie business is there in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Now, when he okay. and so he took his record company, uh, portions of his record company out there, and established a foundation and uh, he kept a portion of it here for a short period of time and he was uh, he was rolling out there you know stars were coming to him everybody knew who he was the, the white movie people didn't know who he was they knew Diana Ross they didn't know him mm-hmm. but he he took full advantage of that, and that's where Mahogany and Lady Sing the Blues, as he put that those type of projects together. Uh, and he he wanted to get Diana Ross into the movie business. He felt he could take on the movie business. The problem was he, he was felt he had enough money to be able to do that. But but the but the movie business was not accepting the 
the business of the movies was not accepting him. Black no, man, no. who's who, who this black man coming here thinking he going to take something over? You know, and so mm-hmm. uh, he, he had a, a bit of a time. He had to pay, I believe it was mahogany, he had to pay for, he he went to the movie, people said, I need more money. They said, no. And Barry was like, well, what am I going to do? They said, put the end on it. Oh, wow. And Barry said, oh, okay, look. He went and got, I think, about $2 million. Brought it back. He said, give me my movie. You know, because they owned yeah. the movie originally. They gave me mm-hmm. my movie. He paid. He paid him back their two million dollars, and he took that movie and he finished it. You know, eventually he he was nominated for Oscar. Wow! But okay. but leading to your question about why Detroit had an attitude, uh, you know, Detroit don't even realize they don't they didn't. I mean, they they hardly supported Barry. Barry supported himself. Barry built everything himself. The city of Detroit mm-hmm. didn't give Barry anything. Even to this day, the city of Detroit, you would think that we got that big old fist, the, the big old arm and the fist in the middle of town. You... You would think they would have replaced that with Statue of Barry Gordy. You would think? He's the, greatest yeah. thing. He's the greatest individual that ever came out of Detroit, but they didn't. And they still haven't today, to this day. It, it took private people to put together a street, name the streets after Barry. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, it it, it it took private people to do all of that is still today the city of Detroit doesn't even recognize I don't I don't even know that Barry ever got any kind of recognition from this city still to this day. So Barry didn't have wow. that kind of loyalty. Really? Now Smokey did. See Smokey didn't yeah. want to move to California. Right. But 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 Barry, you know, Barry convinced him, and come on out here, we can make something happen out here now. Right. And so eventually, Smokey went out there. He, him and his family went out there and stayed. Okay. Well, I'd definitely like to meet him. I didn't get a chance to meet uh, Smokey. He's a he's a cousin, so I have never met him. But it'd be nice too. Um, but yeah, I, I'm starting to get a clearer picture of Motown um, than more than ever. You know, it's coming up as a kid. You know, you hear these stories, and uh, you tend to, to believe it. You know, when you see all the things that, that's going on, because I remember as a kid being in, in Detroit and going down to Motown. You know what I'm saying? Me and my cousins, you know, go down to Motown. It was very exciting to see that. And me being a singer, that was just you know the most awesome thing that I. I can remember in my life. So, and then I had a chance to go um, through um, Motown uh, um, in California 
um, went through some recording sessions and stuff like that. So it was just a, a, a bright, a brilliant idea to make that transition. So as we move forward here, um, the uh, what was the first Motown act go overseas? Uh, that, was, that was Kim West. Kim she West. Went over, she, yeah, she's the guinea pig. You know, they we had never had any groups over overseas before, and right. um, you know the people over there they kind of convinced us that uh, convinced Motown that you know it would have a popular following. Mm-hmm. Nope, that didn't happen. She got in with a couple of other white acts, and uh, that was the first introduction to anybody Motown until the uh, Motown Review went over. And they and the, and that group they convinced Motown that Motown was popular. Cause Motown was selling some records over there. That tour tour sucked big time. They called it the Ghost Tour. Oh, wow. There's there's only a few diehard people that even came to their shows, and the the auditoriums were empty. It wasn't until the end of the show that Dusty Springfield, she, she was a very popular artist there in England. That's right. And she, but she was a big fan of Motown, and Motown was able to put on a show on one of her shows. That's how Motown got popular amongst the English people, because they were on her show. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, um, even though the tour didn't go that well, uh, the English people... They liked Motown so much just because she liked, because Dusty liked Motown. They followed suit, and they created the Northern Soul Organization, which is a bunch a bunch of people that only like black music. Now, yeah. now Northern Northern Soul is a world-renowned fad. Uh, white people that only like black music. The only, as a matter of fact, the only way you can be white and be and be accepted in the music scene is if black people accept you into their music scene. But other than that, they like you. They only want to hear older black music. That's it. That's right. And they have parties. Right. They have week. They have weekender parties where they they dance the whole weekend, all night long, mm-hmm. and then they they go home for a couple of hours, and they come back the next day and dance all night long again. Mm-hmm. And they might do it. They might do it three nights in a row. You know, by the time they go back home, their their feet are worn out, and they they burnt out for a couple of months. Yeah, I was uh, I was about to go overseas about about eight years ago with a group, and uh, we had a, a tragedy that happened to one of the members, so it never really happened. And I was very well looking forward to it. 
because um, we had a lot actually to offer over there. And I know that that uh, black artists are well uh, accepted, uh, and that's where a lot of the acts go at um, the older acts, especially that gets received real real well. You know what I'm saying? So that was going to be something that I want to try to do before I leave this this planet. But, you know, unfortunately at this time, you know, it hasn't happened. doesn't mean it won't, but it's just at this stage of the game. But i got to ask you this, because, uh, you know, people had asked me this question, um, and they want to know who actually named the Vandellas and the Supremes. Um, the Supremes pretty much just put their name in the hat. And the name... The Britons came out, uh, it, and it was uh, put in by Florence Ballard. Okay. And, and the Vandellas, that was a little more difficult. Uh, Martha was already working, so she decided she wanted to bring in her group to to um, to back her up. Well, her group already had a name, the Delphi's. Now, pretty much Rosalind and Annette, you know, who who are the original members, that was their name. See, Martha okay. wasn't, she wasn't the, sing, she wasn't the lead singer of the group. Oh, okay. She didn't handle, she handled clout. Okay. You know, and, um, so uh, there were four members of the group originally, and the, the lead singer and the lead person in the group, she eventually left. But uh, when Martha brought the group to Motown, uh, the the name Delphi was used and taken uh, by Lupine Records. It was not, they had a, they were under another record label. Okay. So Lupine Records sort of own their name. So, okay. uh, Mar- so Barry said, "Look, I'll be back. Y'all determine what your name's going to be." So Barry went upstairs. Now, that's what that's what the Vandellas, um, Rosalind and that, that's what they see. But the reality is, if you think about it, Martha was already working for the record label. Right. They, the group was coming not because they were a famous, popular group, just because Martha wanted them there. Martha was accustomed to singing with them. Mm-hmm. She had the name Vandella. She, she, she took a piece of Van Dyke Boulevard here uh, in Detroit, and uh, and Adele Reese, because that was, was one of her favorite singing artists, and oh, she wow. called it Van. She called it Vandella. But see, Martha hmm. Martha can be shy to a certain degree. She didn't want to actually tell the group, "Well, we're changing the name, and it's going to be the name I want it to be." So what Martha did, she stuck Mary Gordy to change the name. 
And so when everybody was down trying to think of a new name, when Barry came down, he said, y'all think of a new name? They said, no, we haven't come up with nothing yet. Barry said, okay, your name's going to be Zandela. Okay. And then he went away. So if if you ever talk to Martha, see, Martha, she tells the story. She don't always tell the full story. But you can put two and two together after, you know, when you listen to her story, you can put two and two together. Go, okay, she made up this name, but she she didn't want to tell the girls that they had to change their name. Gotcha. So she put she put it up to Barry Gordy to do it, and that's what he did. That's how the Vandellas got started, and then eventually, um, the name changed to Martha and the Vandellas. That's because okay. that's because Annette, one of the original members, when she left, Martha wanted to be able to stand out because that. Martha tell you today she was never really part of a group. She was in Martha's eyes, she was a solo singer that, that had a group. Right. Well, now, we other, have to get her other groups along other the other groups along the way, you know, some some of the singers they got mad they got uptight over the fact that Martha was the only one that had her name out front. Eventually, it was Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Right. Uh, 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 Anybody else really got that status of David Ruffin. Eventually, he wanted it to be David Ruffin and the Temptations because he was the most popular Mm -hmm. singer at the time. But Otis and were like, nah, we ain't doing that. Ain't happening. Yeah. 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 So let, let's do this real quick. Let's go to a commercial break, and we're not, don't lose that thought, and we'll be right back. And you're listening to CRS Radio's Motown Legends and Alumni with Billy and Billy.
sunlight in your hand And tell you time and time again How much I care Sometimes I feel my heart will overflow Hello I've just got to let you know Cause I wonder where you are And I wonder what you do Are you somewhere feeling lonely Or is someone loving you Tell me how to win your heart For I haven't got a clue But let me start by
listening to CRS Radio, Motown Legends and Alumni, with your host, Motown Alumni Association President, Mr. Billy Wilson, and also former recording artist and alumni of Motown, Mr. Billy Tappan. And we're back. And we're going to pick up from where we left off at because I have some more questions for you, Billy. You know, so let me throw some, let me throw let me throw a Motown did you know moment. Uh, um, let's go back to the the last song, Stevie Wonder. You know that that Stevie had a a record company distributed in Canada. Uh, that it was distributed by Motown Records, but it was produced in Canada. He had his own record label. And it, 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 was, called, it was called Wonder Direct. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, Wonder Direction. Okay. And he had, there, there, was, there was a couple of artists on that. It, I believe it was produced in uh, 1983, and not much ever happened with it because uh, the record company eventually, the record company that actually um, created the record uh, was a Canadian record company, but the predominant okay. of it was was, was uh, distributed in Canada. Okay. Now, let me ask you. That's my Motown moment. Okay. Let me ask you this, because I know, uh, I think I can pick two of these uh, artists. uh, um, Who was the the, uh, first, uh, let's see, there were like three acts that were white artists, and I think I can pick two of them and tell me if I'm right. I think one for certain was Rare Earth. The other one was Irene Ryan. And I don't know who the third one would be. Am I correct? There were many, there, there were many white artists at Motown. Many, okay. many white artists. Uh, Pat, Boone, Pat Boone is a Motown alumni. Oh, wow. <laughs> matter, I didn't know that. Matter, matter, matter of fact, Pat Boone and his entire family uh, are Motown alumni. Really? Yeah. Uh, the, the first white group was a group called the Valadiers. Um, I remember them. Yeah. They were they were uh, introduced to Barry through Jackie Wilson. Okay. Um and um the first white um a female artist was Liz Land. Hmm. But there but there were many many uh T G Shepherd, the country singer T G Shepherd. He was not only I a white her. artist but, but he was an executive for Motown. He was a, a marketing executive for Motown. So he, they they had a lot of white artists. Now Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren. 
Bobby Darren. Bobby, oh wow, I didn't know. Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren was a Motown alumni. Sammy Davis Jr. He had a he had a record label. Okay. Uh, under Motown, Diane Carroll. She's a Motown alumni. Leslie Huggins. Oh my. And like you I never say, knew Granny, I Granny from the Beverly Hills Billy yeah, Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. She was not only she was not only an artist, but she was also she also was the star of the of the play Pippin that Motown mm. produced. Okay. You know, that shocked me more than anything else with Irene Ryan, because I never knew at all. And I was doing something and I ran across it. I'm like I didn't know she was a Motown alumni. I had no clue. That's right. That's right. Wow. That is that is amazing. Now, yeah. um, can there ever be another Motown uh, in, in, that you can see right now today? No. Maybe Gabriel Entertainment, right? <laughs> no. You know, I you because... No, you know, you know why? Because everybody has their preconceived ideas of what it what it meant to put such a record company together, but the magnitude of the struggle is what made Motown work, and nobody's willing to struggle like Motown did to make their right. artists uh, 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 put on, you know, get them on record or anything of that nature. That nobody's gonna. Not too many people are going to struggle to do that. Yeah. Everybody kind of, everybody kind of lazy a little bit. Well, you know what, Billy? This is the thing with Motown actually broke through with the fact of all it, all was what was going on in the world at that particular time to actually be able to get airplay. Just was an amazing thing. Um, so you had some historical moments there with a lot of people not knowing that there were a lot of whites that really worked for Motown. It was a part of Motown. So that history-making situation was right there, and nobody ever knew. And this is groundbreaking stuff. So um, I definitely uh, admire Barry's situation, you know, because I think he did a tremendous job on putting this vision, putting this vision together. So, you know, I have to give him more, uh, more kudos than any other label because he came from nothing, you know what I'm saying? And built this foundation. So yes. So um let me ask you something else. Uh um why, you know, why are artists today not making any money uh in the business? You know, I mean we all kind of know that situation, but I think the audience is not aware of it. And maybe some people that are in music and trying to get to that level. So can you explain that to them? Well, things have changed since then. We don't. We're not selling forty-fives or CDs or eight tracks. We're not selling physical products anymore. That was the big. That was the big money maker during this time. Now they mm-hmm. come streaming. You know, basically, we're just listening to a platform and listening to the music we like. There's no money in that. They right. the artists artists only make point zero zero three percent off of right. their 
off of their uh, music. Uh, that's that's for everybody that listens to the song. That mm-hmm. that person takes point zero zero three percent. So wow. hopefully, if you if you at least get you know ten thousand people, you might get a hundred dollars maybe. Oh God! If you, if you, if, you, if you get if you get uh ten thousand people to listen to you, you know it. What? Why today? Uh, big artists are so popular. You know they they develop their fan base for a long, long time. The big artists like Beyonce and. Uh, Nicki Minaj, they they got a following and a fan base that's devoted to them, and they're in the millions. Yeah. And it takes it takes that just to make enough money, to make enough money that you can you can live off of it for about a year, and don't live mm-hmm. the big life. You're right. You know, but they. Ninety-nine percent of the artists that you see out there, which includes Smokey, Diana, other people of that nature, they have to work just to keep the lifestyle that they that they have created for themselves. You know, who wants to, who wants to go from living in a in a mansion to finding a bungalow in Detroit? Yeah, exactly. So that's, yeah, nobody. Okay, well, I, I got another question for you. Um, and this is uh, I think relevant to uh, artists now. Um, can an older older artist make it in the, the music business than today, older than fifty years old? Yeah, I mean that's I believe what that. I, that's what I was saying about the Northern Soul people. No, there's mm-hmm. old people. All you have to be is old. You better be if you over fifty and black. You have a pretty damn good chance of getting into that northern soul scene. Yeah, and, I totally agree. And and you could play the music like you played it back in the day because they, they like yep. that sound. Yeah. They don't like yeah. today's hip hop sound. Okay. They like that old, old. They like that old man music sound. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what it is because they realize how great the music is over here, um, especially with Motown. I think that was the biggest breakthrough that you can ever imagine, and to be, be able to penetrate over there. Um, to make it as huge as it is, you know, because everybody I've talked to that has been over there as independent artists, they're well-received. And, and don't do Motown or something like that, man. You're just going to be, like, making some serious money, you know, because they love that. Well, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't make an awful lot of money, but they, they make enough money that they're satisfied. And the people over there, they try their best to, they know they can't afford the big, big stuff. For these artists, and plus, it, 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 those people do recognize you're an old artist. You know, you're not what's happening now. You just happen to be right. what's happening 
during their the mo- their moment in time. Now, if you right. go over there and get the if you go over there and get the big head and think that you're bigger than what you really are, you know, uh-huh. you can you can turn a lot of them people away quickly. You know, oh, yeah. if you're gonna yeah. go if you're gonna go and be a prick. You know, they'll mm-hmm. they'll turn they'll be real nice about turning away from you, but they won't hire you again. That's right. You now, know, you, this is you, have, you have to go over and be humble. That's right. So let me ask you this, Billy. I mean, I am, you know, I personally don't like this situation, but um, you know, what do you think about cursing in a in a song? Is that a good or bad thing? From your opinion, I know what my opinion is. One day century, they want if this twenty first century, they want to curse, let them curse. I'm okay. With yeah, but yeah, but you know what? This is the difference between the R and B situation versus what we're hearing now, and the stuff that's going on. You know, I'm kind of like with me, the cursing situation. I'm not really feeling that. You know, I like. I just, I'm just old school. You know, what I'm saying I like. What I like to hear, I like to hear something like back in the day with the Temptations, where you know you knew what they were talking about, but they were actually, you know, in your mind, you can visualize what they were saying without cussing and without sex X-rated stuff. But you know what they were talking about. You know what I'm saying? That's what made it so simple back in them days, because you didn't That's have any type of elements. That you have now. That's, that's yeah. why the money. That's why the money making populace, the ones that actually spend money, they ain't gonna buy none of your music. That's they, right. They got their, they got their own style and stuff that they want to do. You know, it it wasn't it wasn't that much different than when we were young. Um, no, no. A case in point. Um. When R&B music got popular in the early 60s, you know, white people didn't like it, and black people kind of barely liked it. But older mm-hmm. black people, they were accustomed to do op music. They were accustomed to uh, singing up under street like music. That's but right. When the young when the young people came in, older people didn't like it. Right. Uh, ten years later, the shaft perspective come in where everybody looking like pimps, mm-hmm. and we, you know, those of us that was younger looking at Soul Train, you know, we thought that was right. cool. But older people that were doing doo wop, they didn't like that music. When That's when right. hip hop. And hip hop became popular, you know, that was for young people, old people that were in the 60s, they were like, they like doo-wop music. When disco came came in, us musicians, we hated disco. Yeah, yep. You know, thank God I was a bass player because, you know, bass players were dominating back in those days, but drummers, they put drummers out of business. Definitely did. And, Definitely did. and once the drum machine came in, drummers really were out of business. Yeah. 
It changed the whole game. So, you know, the same perspective you got is the same perspective that has gone down from generation to generation. The old hip-hop people, they don't like today's hip-hop people because they cuss too much and they, you know, back in the day, it was more happier kind of music, uh, rap. Yes, it was. Happier kind of rap. Yes, I agree. The old hip-hoppers, they old. Ain't nobody trying to pay no attention to what old people are talking about. I'm going with the young people and what they think today. I like yeah. what they like, and, you know, I'm cool with it. I I promote music. I promote their music. And I tell them the right. first thing, the first thing I tell them, I don't care if you cuss or not, there's, there's a place for you who, who people who like to cuss. They usually play that music late at night. They play that music in strip bars and 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 nightclubs throughout the throughout the world. Sure, Festival, sure. At festivals and nightclubs and strip, and these those songs make millions of dollars. So oh, ain't nobody no, trying to ain't nobody trying to pay no attention to old people giving their opinions. <laughs> you know, I'm old myself, so uh, you know I understand. Well, we have to be open in terms of the business that we're in. You know what I'm saying? Um, even though I don't like it, uh, I'm still open to it, you know? I mean, if it's got it's something that's going to make money, I'm with it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, do I like a lot of cussing? No, no. Uh, but I would imagine in that if I was up, up in that uh, age bracket, I'd probably love it, knowing me, you know what I'm saying, back in the day. Because people thought we were crazy listening to Funkadelics. You know what I'm saying? And they finally learned that the Funkadelics was really on top of their game. Because I used to have girlfriends who were like, why are you listening to that crazy stuff for? You know what I'm saying? This is nuts. But they ended up, you know, loving the Funkadelics. You know, so there's mm-hmm. a difference of opinions. But uh, hold your thought just for a minute, Billy. We're going to go to a commercial, and we'll be right back with Billy and Billy. And you are listening to CR Radio Motown Legends and Alumni with Billy and Billy. We will be back right after this. Together we'll 
wasting your time with this garbage. Now go to bed! Okay.
Motown Legends and Alumni with Billy and Billy. And with us, you have Mr. Billy Wilson, Motown Alumni President, and Mr. Billy Captain, former recording artist. And Billy, take it away. All right, and we're back. Now, Billy, we got a few minutes left. Uh, you want to take us out? We got about five minutes. So, any last words? Uh, yeah, I am um, producing um, a young person here in Detroit. Her name is Nan Bailey. I produced the Nan Bailey Live show. Um, at the Aretha uh, Cafe over there here in Detroit at the Music Hall. Uh, okay. I also I'm also uh, developing a program. It's called the Motown in the School Program, and what I'm doing is I'm taking a record company, placing it inside of a school. And making rock stars out of these young children inside of uh, the 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 carrot on the stick is you have to have a B minus average to participate in the program. And to even come to a concert, you have to have a C average. So we're we'll be putting together talent shows and events for the school and fundraisers. You know it. Don't let one of the kids' records become a major hit. You know, the school gets 50% of the royalties, and the child, the child gets royalties the rest of their lives. Right. Well, let me do this. Um, I'm going to get together with you um, in person. I'm going to show you something that's just uh, you're on point on this situation because this is kind of a plan that I have um, for the school that I'm putting together also. But... Um, um, we're about ready to air off, and what I'd like to say to everybody, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, we are brand new, and we're bringing nothing but the best. Uh, um, Billy Wilson is a, a, a personal friend, and, and he is a great, great guy. And you want to listen in to some of these things that we're going to be talking about as far as the business. Um, we might have some backstories on some of the acts because we're going to try to define different acts and bring them on so we can have a conversation with them. So, Billy, until next week, uh, we'll be signing off. And it was great pleasure being in partnership with you on this, this project. And we hope to see you much more and many more times. So let's talk to you, uh, talk to you guys later. Billy, we're out of here. I, I appreciate it. See you all later. All right. Okay. <laughs>